Hi, my name is Sarah, and the Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 40, 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. He is understand- His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall feel exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on the wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. The words of the Lord. Hi, my name is Hannah. Uh, the New Testament reading is found in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-four through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do, not, they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Julie. Please stand for the gospel reading found in John twenty nineteen through 23. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The Gospel of our Lord. Maybe seated. Well, we are finally resuming our series in 1 Corinthians. It's been so long that some of you might have forgotten it, but we covered eight chapters, one through eight, before Lent, and then we took a break, and we did Lent, and then we did a couple weeks of Easter sermons, and then now here we are, the next few weeks, we're going to finish up this book, 9 through 16. So a great idea would be to read along with us each week, just a chapter a week. Um, I, many of you might be already on a Bible reading plan, but if you're not, please, this would be a wonderful thing to do. Read, the, read ahead, read after. We've talked about it. Let this, let this whole kind of letter um, soak with you. And in fact, for, for, the, for the bold, um, what you could do is actually sit down with a cup of coffee and read the whole letter all the way through. And that'll give you a sense of how a letter is normally read. Uh, it's a good idea to do it. I mean, not many of us receive an email and read one sentence and then stop and say, you know, uh, dear Dave, hmm, we think about that, you know. So, so, and there's nothing, of course, there is a long tradition of meditating on certain passages of scripture, and yet perhaps one of the lost arts is seeing a, a macro view of an entire letter from Paul. And so certainly you could do that with 1 Corinthians and see a lot out of it. One of the things we have seen as we've journeyed through this letter, or one of the set of lenses, if you will, that we're putting on, is this question of what does it look like to be the people of God in our world? 
So we've called this series Church in the City. And the reason we've called it that is because Corinth is a very remarkable city, uh, and I'll say a bit more about its history and, and some things about it, but a city that's, that, that feels very much like an all-American kind of city. A city that came to prize entrepreneurs and status and success. A city that was obsessed with sex. A city that was taken in by all of these different notions. It's also um, a city where Paul, for the first time, plants a church that doesn't grow out of a Jewish community. And so it's the first kind of major city that Paul begins a work in where there's a dominantly Gentile influence. And so the, the idea is, look, if the gospel can take root in a city like Corinth, the gospel can take root anywhere. But it also means if you can live like the people of God in a city like Corinth, it means there's hope for all of us, even as the world changes all around us, even as society changes all around us. One of the questions we have as Christians in this world is specifically, what do we do with ambition? What do we do with ambition and drive? Because there's something in us that wants to compete or that wants to be motivated, and we're not sure if, that's, if there's anything Christian about that. You know, as a sports fan, I think about all the great athletes that over the years, the result of competition and rivalry made both careers better. Uh, my dad and I are tennis fans, you know, so I remember as a boy, just vaguely, the, the, the Agassiz and Sampras um, rivalry. And then, of course, in the last few years, the, this golden age of tennis where you had Federer and Nadal, and it was, they were always meeting each other either in the semifinals or the finals, and you're always wondering, okay, who, who's going to get it this time? Or maybe in the football world, you know, Brady versus Manning and all of this stuff. And, 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 who, and, and I remember watching the first AFC championship game where it was the Colts against the Patriots. And you remember this? The Colts were down like 23-0 at halftime or something. And you thought, here we go again. Manning can't beat Brady. Manning can't beat Belichick. And they, they score all of these points in the second half and win the game and go on. And that's the year that, that Manning wins the Super Bowl. It's going to happen with us sometime too. Um, <laughs> just go ahead and prophesy. Um, <laughs> But there's this, there's this rivalry that where athletes push one another. Of course, you N- NBA fans will remember Bird versus Magic, Jordan versus everyone else, you know. <laughs> the, the, these dominant athletes were the result of competition and ambition and drive. And so we sometimes think, well, what happens to that when we become a Christian? Does Jesus kind of say, well, you need to renounce that drive you need to set that aside. And really to be a Christian is to sit passively singing kumbaya, waiting to be swept up in a chariot that will swing low, whatever that means. <laughs> and that somehow Christianity is all about domesticating you and saying, oh, I, just, uh, I used to be so driven, but now I'm just sweet. I'm just sweet. I just like, yeah, I just, yeah. And certainly something happens to competition, we'll talk about that, something happens to that rival competitive thing, but what happens to the drive itself? What happens to ambition itself? Is there any room for it in the kingdom? Now the backdrop of Corinth, and we'll put a few slides up to help you uh, refresh your memory of this, but ancient Corinth was this Hellenistic city uh, uh, that was thriving with, cor- with commerce and culture. It was a great center of industry and trade. And, and, um, and then Greece was conquered by Rome, there it is, in 196 BC. Corinth at first was, a, was not really touched by it, but uh, 50 years later it was destroyed by a man named Mummius. 
which is an interesting name. If you were named Mummies, maybe you'd go around destroying cities too. But in 146, he destroys it, and actually this, this once great, once proud city lay in ruins for about 100 years. And then finally, it was, it was rebuilt when Julius Caesar, by Julius Caesar in 46 B.C., It became a Roman colony. This is what the Romans did. They rebuilt and said, aren't you so thankful for us? Go ahead and be part of our empire now. Oh, which, by the way, that means these taxes and these obligations and all of that stuff. But aren't you so thankful for us? And so Caesar rebuilds it. This whole province, it's kind of this this isle, isthmus, actually, is connected. And it's, it's called Achaia. And Corinth becomes this capital of Achaia. By the time Paul arrives in about A.D. 49, there's likely about a quarter of a million people in this city, 250,000 people, a large number of local Greeks, large number of Jews, but also a lot of freedmen from Italy, Roman government uh, officials. It was a lot of... Caesar, when he would colonize a place, would often say to his retired military people to say, thank you for your service, have a town, would you? Have a village, and so a lot of a lot of retired um, soldiers would settle had settled Corinth. So we've got a military influence. We've got a thriving commerce because of it being on this isthmus. It it was an ideal place for trade. So it became a place of new money, new wealth, very New York City meets Colorado Springs, right? And um, and uh, it also became a favorite spot of, of emperors because of its location to the water. But imagine this. Paul arrives in A.D. 49. And in his day, if you were a good teacher, if you were a teacher worth anything, you didn't have to work because some wealthy business person would decide that you deserved patronage and they would be your sponsor. They would be your patron. And they would say, you are such a brilliant, wise, amazing teacher. We're going to pay you and you just travel about teaching. Paul, on the other hand, arrives in Corinth, down the Agora, in the marketplace, finds a few other Jewish merchants named Priscilla and Aquila, and and joins them and starts making stuff with them and selling stuff. And so they look at Paul and they say, Paul, clearly you're not very good at what you do. You you couldn't get a patron to to underwrite your, your teaching? You must be sort of a substandard. And so you, could, you couldn't help but feel that these Christians in the small little congregation in Corinth thought that, yeah, we've got a pastor, but I mean, he's, you know, I don't think he's very good, actually. You know, I mean, this is, I, I mean, I don't think he has a lot of Twitter followers. Uh, I don't, I mean, I don't, I mean, nobody really wants to pay him. I mean, he has to work, you know. So, so there's this undertone, even in Paul's letter, where Paul's kind of defending himself and saying, hey, hey, am I not an apostle? And if you pick up chapter 9, that's exactly what he's saying here. So we're going to just kind of work our way quickly through a few verses. So he starts in verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not a freed person? I'm not a person of low social status. And then he says, "Am am I not an apostle? I'm a messenger, right? I'm the one that has been sent. That's what that word apostle means, is messenger. And he says, have I not seen Jesus? And they're thinking, well, I mean, you saw him in a vision, but like the other dudes like spent three years with him. But we don't have one of the creme de la creme apostles. We got like the the JV apostle, you know. (laughs) And he starts defending his authority. He's basically saying, don't I have authority here? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? This is Paul's kind of jab saying, if you think I'm lousy, what does that mean you are? (laughs) Because you're my work. And then he says, "If, if to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. 
And says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife as the other apostles? I mean, you can kind of see Paul's flow of thought. First, don't I have the authority? Then, don't I have a right? Are are you depriving me of of what you think my rights are? And then you skip down to verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some milk? Do I say these things on human authority? And then he starts quoting Moses about not muzzling an ox and how the workman is worthy of, of his share. And he says, look, I've sown spiritual things. Can't I reap a few material things? And you're thinking, gee, Paul, is this like Paul on a rant of like what his rights are and his authority? And you see he's just been setting them up because all of a sudden, halfway through verse 12, his tone shifts, or at least he comes to his real point. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. Look, do I have the authority? Yeah. Do I have the right? Yeah. But do you know what? More important than my authority or my rights is the gospel. And I will not do anything that would risk jeopardizing my ability to preach the gospel to you. Now, could you imagine if some of our ministers today had that kind of a lens? What? What's wrong with me having a $20 million house? What's wrong? Don't I have a right? Don't I have... Look, if you take that approach, you've missed what Paul's saying. Because Paul's saying, look, the question's not, don't I have a right? The question is, is this going to help or hurt the spread of the gospel? But let's not just pick on Christian leaders. That could be all of us as Christians. How many times do we insist on certain religious rights at the expense of the gospel being proclaimed? Do we live in a world where the word evangelical is is immediately associated with angry Christians fighting for their civil rights or religious rights? I'm not saying, look, look, there's important ways that we need to engage and speak up civil liberties and all those things matter. I'll leave those to people to sort out that are in different spheres of life than me. But as a pastor, I want to say, Is there a chance that we can be so fixated on defending our rights that we've put a bad taste of the gospel in other people's mouths? Is there a chance we could have done that? What if we have the lens that says, you know what, yeah, I could insist on this, yes, I could push on that, yes, I could demand this, but do you know what, that's just going to turn people off to the gospel, and I'm I'm not ready to do that. Let Let me lose all my rights, but let the gospel go free. Let me lose all of my privileges, but let Christ be preached. See, Paul kind of starts with his identity as an apostle and his identity as a sent one. And then he says, but you know what? Do you know what it looks like to be sent by Jesus? It doesn't look like privilege. It looks like service. It doesn't look like status. It looks like sacrifice. Paul says, listen, in God's economy, everything is upside down. In the kingdom, being commissioned by God means fewer rights, not more rights. And in the kingdom, being commissioned by God actually means more responsibility for others, not less responsibility for others. Don't forget the chapter that we've just come out of is chapter 8, where Paul is teaching the Corinthian church, don't just ask yourself, is it wrong or is it sinful? Ask yourself, how will this affect others? How will this decision affect others? Here's Paul basically saying there would have been nothing unrighteous, there would have been nothing even unjust 
about me asking for this or, 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 or requiring this. There would have been nothing wrong with it. But how would it have affected all of the people for whom I have responsibility? And Paul says, yeah, I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. That's, that's not worth it. Paul was unwilling to let the gospel suffer so he could have his rights. But what about us? Where are we? One of the things I want to say to us this morning is that this idea of being, an, being commissioned by God, let's take the word apostle in a non, um, not in the sense of an office of an apostle, that we know that there, there is that, the fivefold gifts, not, but let's take it in the spirit of it, the function of it. And that word, apostolos, to be sent, the messenger. And you follow Paul's flow of thought through this chapter, and he's kind of saying, okay, guys, you know, I haven't made use of any of these rights. Verse 19, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. I've taken on a servanthood. To the Jews, I became like a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, though not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. And then he says, here's his phrase, to the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that, all, that by all means I might save some. And I do all of it for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. But then he begins to turn his attention to them. And in a, in a way, what Paul is saying is, look, what's true of me is also true of you. <laughs> that we have all been given an assignment. We have all been sent. We have all been commissioned. What if I told you this morning that you have been <laughs> sent. How would that change the way you think about your job on Monday mornings? How would that change the way you think about your family? How would that change the way you think about your friendships? To say, I have been sent to this. And you wake up every morning and you say, God, I'm going to go to work. And yeah, I've got an earthly boss. And yes, I've got an earthly task. And yes, I've got an assignment. But I have been sent by you. We're on a mission from Gad little blues brothers for you. We're here. I'm here to do this because this is what you have sent me to do. Imagine how that might reframe your life. This summer in June, we're going to do a four-week series on work. We're going to call it God at Work. And we're going to talk about the idea of vocation and occupation and how we can view this through the lens of saying, God has called us to this. And how that changes everything. Really how that changes even parenting. I remember when Holly and I first had Sophia and, and, and she, was, she had just finished her master's in counseling and she was going to try to work a little bit part-time and then after a while decided, you know, I think I'm going to stay home. I think I want to stay home and be um, with Sophia. And, and, and so we, just, we were thinking through that. But obviously there's a bit of a, there's an adjustment to that. There's an adjustment where you're used to your purpose being expressed in one way and then having your purpose now expressed a different way. But you know, for a lot of moms who stay home, it takes a little bit to say, this is a mission. 
This is a mission from God. It, it, it may be that you're tracking with me and you say, yeah, there's a mission when I go to work, but I've made the choice to be home, and I, I don't feel any mission in that. But what if we say there is a mission even in motherhood, fatherhood, marriage, that in every step of this, for all of us where we are, there is a sentness to our lives, a quality where we say, I, I embrace this. Wherever you are, whether it's um, I work part-time or, I do, or I, I'm home or I work full-time or I'm unemployed at the moment or I, I'm in school, or wherever you are, whatever station in life, can you say, God, help me to believe that you have sent me to this place and to these people. And watch how that begins to reframe your life. Because when you think, when you realize you have been sent, you realize that now you will be spent. You have been sent to be spent. And I said this to our, our Swazi team as we were praying for them before they went out and the team felt like the Lord brought this to my heart again, to say when you are being sent in the name of Jesus, it also now means that it is Jesus who will spend you. It is Jesus who will pour you out. So Paul is not saying, I've become a servant to all because I'm such a good person. He's not saying, I make all these sacrifices of my rights because I'm altruistic and I'm noble. No, Paul's saying, listen, it's because I understand that I am a messenger from Jesus. I am an, uh, a sent one. That's the reason I'm able to spend myself. It's kind of like how Jesus said, no one takes my life. I lay it down. So at your workplace, when people begin to challenge you or test your patience, you say, you know what? Nobody is taking advantage of me. I choose to serve the people around me. I choose to be patient. I choose to be forgiving by the grace of God. Why? Because God sent me to this place. Because God sent me to these people. I have been sent to be spent. And then finally, he moves to this motif here in verse 24 of athletics again. And he says, run to win. Run to win. You have been sent. You've been sent to be spent. So what? So run to win. Go for it. Like, actually do it. Like, don't wake up in the morning and say, well, you know, I love Jesus and I hate my job, but it's just what I have to do. You know, another day, another dollar. Listen that should never come out of our mouths as followers of Jesus. But to say, you know what, this is another leg of the race today. I don't love what I'm doing at the moment. This is challenging, this is hard, but God, help me to run in such a way as to win. A couple, uh, let me read this from the message translation because Peterson's paraphrase here is really fun. Peterson's paraphrase, that should be what it's called. Okay. You've all been to the stadium and seen the athletes race. Now, why does Paul say this? See, Corinth was the site of a biannual games called the Isthmian Games. And the Isthmian Games were second only to the Olympic Games. And so when Paul had arrived, likely these games had just been over. And so he's, he's referencing something that had just happened in their city. He says, look, you've all been there. You've seen the athletes race. Everyone runs, but one wins. Everybody runs, but only one wins. And then he says, run to win. Run to win. You hear the echo of Herm Edwards, you know, you NFL Sports Center junkies like me. You play to win the game. Okay, a few of you got that. Anyway, it's a great classic rant. Um, all good athletes train hard. 
They do it for a gold medal that tarnishes and fades. Actually, the ESV says a wreath because they would get these grass wreaths and you're just like, oh, it's such an honored thing at the moment. But guess what's going to happen to that wreath? It's going to die. It's going to fade. It's going to be brittle and you're like, oh, yeah. Remember that? Uh. But he says, you're after one that's gold eternally. I don't know about you, but I'm running hard for the finish line. I'm, I'm giving it everything I've got. No sloppy living for me. I'm staying alert and in top condition. I'm not going to get caught napping. Is, is Peterson thinking of the tortoise and the hare here? I'm, I'm not sure. Telling everyone else all about it and then missing out myself. No sloppy living. I'm giving it everything I've got. Yesterday, I was getting ready to fly home from a week in England, and it was a good week of school and some other things as well. And I had a few hours in London before my flight, and of all the different things I've been able to see, I had never made it to the British Museum. And, and so I went in yesterday for really just about one hour. And I knew the things I wanted to see. I wanted to see ancient Egypt and then Greek and Rome. I just want, I wanted to see that stuff. And it, the, the things that they, that they have are amazing. And it, in this glass case was this vase from um, um, competitions, races, marathons. And, and on this one particular thing, there was this whole you know, plaque explaining it. And it said, uh, you know, they, they inscribe on the, on the um, vase, it was a prize vase, and they gave the vase to the winner. But there's two things that are, you know, uh, drawn on it. The first was a picture of what the event was. And so it, it pointed out that the runners had their arms kind of low, which, I, you know, despite Dan's best efforts, I'm not quite classified as a runner yet. But, but I didn't get what that meant. What do you mean your hand's low? And they said, if you're sprinting, your arms are high. But if you're running a marathon... Your arms are lower because you've got to conserve energy a bit more. And they're standing upright. And so the picture of these runners is kind of like this. I look just like it, don't I? Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and it was saying that the event is a long-distance race. You know, it's key, if we're going to run to win, it's key to know what the event is. What, what is this event? You know, ATN and I coach four-year-old soccer, and a few, of them, a few of the boys are in different sports at the same time, so one of them just came off basketball, and he was convinced that off of a throw-in, you're supposed to catch it, but he was a little confused because there was no, you know, anyway. So you've got to know what the event is. If you're going to win, you've got to know what, what, what's the event. What is the event? What's the race? What's Paul talking about? What is this race that this Christian life is? Well, we could say, well, the Christian life is a marathon. It's a long obedience in the same direction. Persistent faithfulness. It's putting one step in front of the other. It's getting up each morning and saying, God, thank you that your mercies are new. Help me today. But you know, it's, it's a different kind of race in some ways because we're not in competition with one another. Instead, we're running with one another. And it's more like the kind of thing where you say, together we're going to finish. Together we're going to get there. Run the race to win. I think the kind of race that we're in is a race that if we look at Jesus and we say, what, what was it like? Oh, it was a life lived 
spent for the glory of God and for the good of another. A life spent for the glory of God and for the good of another. This is what this race is. A life spent for the glory of God and for the good of another. It's not a selfish race. It's not a race of achievement that says, what can I achieve for me? It's not a race that says, what can I accomplish so I can have another feather in my cap, another kind of notch in my buckle? It's it's not a thing so I can gather more accolades, more things to etch on my tombstone. No, it's the race that says, how can I spend every ounce of my life for the glory of God and for the good of another? And maybe that other is your friend or spouse or your children Something incredibly powerful of saying, I'm living, I'm running, but not for myself, but for the sake of another, for someone beyond me. I don't know if you saw the movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, but one of the things you get to do when you take long flights is watch movies, you know, that I never get to see in normal life. But it's a remarkable parable of what love does in awakening courage in us. And so for this love of this other, he begins to step out of his small world and say, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's this. And finally, at the end, you realize the man that he's become is a person that has given his life away for the sake of another. And you realize this is the race to which we are called, a race that is not about, <laughs> not all the strutting stuff that you see athletes do, look at me, look at me. No, 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 but the, the life that says, spent for the glory of God and for the good of another. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because it doesn't take long in the race before you realize we fall. And it doesn't take long in the race before we realize, well, I like that idea, Glenn. I like running that kind of race, but I wonder if I'm disqualified because I've tripped a few times. Paul says, don't, don't trip. I, I've tripped. Paul says, don't be caught napping. I've been caught napping. Uh, Paul says, no sloppy living. I've had sloppy living. Glenn, I mean, is it over? On the other side of these prize vases that these athletes would receive is not just the picture of the event, but it was a picture of the God that was the presiding deity over the event. So whatever, this would be X, you know, God or goddess that was the one that presided over this event. Who do you think is the God that presides over our race? God the Father, Jesus the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Think of this. The God that presides over this race is actually the God who entered this race himself. The God who took on himself all of our falling and all of our failure. The God who took all of our brokenness and all of our wounds, all of our pain and all of our sadness, all of our rebellion, all of our determination to run the other way, all of our laziness and our brokenness, this God took it upon himself. And on the cross, at the end of his race, he said, it is finished. What does it mean that the God who presides over our race is the God who entered it and finished it on our behalf. You know what it means? It means when you and I run, we run from the position of one who has already won. What? 
you run from the position of one who has already won. See, sometimes we try to be overly you know, analytical and, and we, we say it overly simplistically. We say, oh, because Jesus ran the race, I don't need to run. No, it's not quite that. It's, it's not that sort of A, B. It's, the mystery is much more profound than that. But somehow, because he has run it and he has finished it, now you can run it and you're going to run it from the position of one who's already won. You don't enter this race as a weak, feeble, I don't know if I can do You enter this as saying, in Christ, I've won this. So come on, let's get up. And I imagine Jesus coming up to us, bloodied and broken and fallen as we are, and saying, hey, hey, Steve, that was a nasty little fall. But Steve, the finish line's that way. It's not over. Steve, come on, come on, come on, let's go. Come on, let's finish this thing. Come on, let's, let's finish. We, we've already won this, Steve. There's a prize already waiting. So come on, let's finish this thing. Really, in a sense, running is not about running for Jesus as much as it is running to Jesus. That's why we end each week after the sermon. We go to communion and we go to this long time of worship because we know that in the end, like that song, oh, I'm running to your arms, I'm running to your arms. Because this race is not me saying, God, you impressed? Eh? But us saying, Jesus, Jesus, thank you that you've run this and that you've won Jesus, I just want to run to your arms. And in your arms, I know I can take another step today. In your arms, I know I can take another step. Because Jesus, you're the one who says, receive the Spirit. And Jesus, I remember the words of Isaiah that said, when you wait on the Lord, you're going to run and not be weary. You're going to walk and not faint. You're going to fly with wings like eagles. Let's pray. If you would, just kind of do palms up like this, open up our hands. It's just a way of saying with our bodies, oh God, I need you, I'm open. And we're going to take a moment here to confess, but we don't confess our sins to beat ourselves up, but we confess our sins is like that runner on the side of the race that just kind of says, well, I need some help. Forgive me for thinking I'm on my own. Maybe for some of us, we need to say, God, I'm sorry for running the wrong race. Forgive me for, for being driven, but being driven for the sake of fame and selfish ambition. See, the Bible doesn't condemn ambition. The Bible challenges selfish ambition because that is embracing a very small story. Jesus calls us to this godly ambition, this bigger race. Maybe for some of us it's worth saying, God, forgive me for, for taking a smaller race. Forgive me for my selfish ambition, of wealth and fame. Jesus, call me to the bigger race today. Jesus, meet me as I'm fallen, meet me as I'm weak. 
Jesus, I'm running to you today. 